This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. have your Bibles, you can open them to Judges 7. The story we're looking at today comes from that passage. In the valley of Morah are hordes of Midian. For seven years, the Midianites had cruelly oppressed Israel. So inhumane were their tactics that they would intentionally wait until Israel had planted their crops. And then like a swarm of locusts, they would sweep through the land, uprooting and destroying all that Israel had done. Their oppression of Israel was both economic and deeply psychological. Now, 135,000 of them were camped again waiting for the opportune time to unleash their unique brand of warfare. Just to the south of the Midianite army are 32,000 Israelites, led by a fearful and timid Gideon. God had once again listened to the desperate cries of his people. He had raised up a deliverer for them. But Israel, as it stands, is outnumbered four to one. How can they possibly win this battle? God has an idea. He comes to Gideon and he gets straight to the point. Gideon, you have too many men. What's wrong with this picture? They're outnumbered 135,000 to 32,000, but God says 32,000 is too many. Gideon, you have too many men. So the announcement is made that anyone who is afraid can return home. At first, the departure rate is a trickle. Then I'm sure Gideon's nerves were tested as that trickle turned into a deluge as he watches 22,000 of his 32,000 depart. They're down to 10,000, outnumbered 13 to 1. Now, you would think God would assess this and conclude, now that's more like it. But we have the opposite. God again comes to Gideon and he says, Gideon, there are still too many men. So God instructs Gideon to have the men go down to the stream to get a drink. Those who cup the water in their hands and drink are to stay. Those who get down on their knees and drink directly from the stream are to leave. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over trying to hypothesize what is in this criteria, but I suspect that the test is less about figuring out um, a particular kind of army than it is assembling a particular quantity of army. After the test is applied, Gideon's army numbers just 300. He has seen more than 99% reduction in his fighting force. And now this army of 300 is going to take on an army of 135,000. Now, knowing Gideon's fearful nature, 
God tells Gideon to take his servant Pura and sneak into the Midianite camp at night to listen to what they're saying. So the two of them quietly creep into the vast expanse of Midianites. They crouch outside one of the tents and they listen. A man inside had had a dream and he's relaying this dream to his fellow Midianite comrade. He says, I had a dream that a loaf of bread came tumbling into our camp. It struck the tent with such force that it knocked it down. And his friend replied, God has given the whole Midianite army into the hands of Gideon. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and he worshiped. He then returned to the Israelite camp and he instructs his band of 300 men to each take a trumpet, a torch, and a clay jar. In the middle of the night, at Gideon's command, they blew their trumpets, they gave a great shout, they broke the jars, and they let their torches shine for all to see. And then we have in chapter 7, verse 22, when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. Once again, Israel has been saved. What do we learn from this? Three things. Number one, we learn human boasting is the real enemy. Imagine being in Israel's camp at the beginning of the story. Hordes of Midianites have economically and psychologically bullied you for seven years. As it stands, you're already outnumbered four to one. Your concern is the Midianites. The Midianites are the real enemy. But look at what God says in verse two. Right away in verse two, God says, I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. God's concern for Israel isn't the Midianites. <laughs> the real enemy is human boasting. Boasting is what we do when we want to encourage ourselves and others to give us glory, to make much of us, to get others to be impressed with us, to get people to point at us and say, wow. That's the real enemy. So in reducing the army, God is getting Israel to see themselves as so weak, so inadequate. They say of themselves, we are incapable of this. And when the victory is won, they're not going to look at, them, look at each other and say, look at what we've accomplished. Instead, they're going to say, can you believe this happened? Stories in the Bible aren't only documenting historical events. They're demonstrating spiritual realities. And such is the case with this one. And it works out a number of ways in our lives today. It works out, first of all, on the level of conversion. Because this story of Gideon is a salvation story. It's a deliverance story. Part of becoming a true believer is God bringing us to the point where we see our inadequacy and our weakness. Several years ago, a woman by the name of Elizabeth came to see me in my office. And uh, uh, I asked her what was on her mind. And uh, she started talking a little bit about uh, the preaching that she had been experiencing at uh, 
at the church and how different it was from what she had grown up with. And uh, so we were talking about aspects core to the gospel. And uh, one of the things I was hammering, knowing her church tradition, I was going after this concept of grace. Again and again and again, that, that it is, it's not by compiling a moral resume in this life that we are ultimately found acceptable before God, that God has sent Jesus into our world to live a perfect life for us and to die in our place. And, and we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. And she had a very, very hard time with this. And she said, at one point, she said, well, can't I bring something to the table? Just something. Can't I bring something to the table? And I said to her, Elizabeth, the only thing you're gonna bring to the table is your sin. She didn't like that. I, let me bring something that's good. Just a shred of it, just a little bit. Just a little bit. God can do 99% of it, let me do one. That's not the gospel. In saving people, there can be no mistake about who gets the credit for the saving act. That's why the thought of, well, I contributed very little, but I contributed something, is not the place we need to be. When you became a Christian, or when you reflect on the time that you became a Christian, did you ever say, or do you ever think, can you believe that happened? The Gideon story is a salvation story. They're outnumbered 450 to one. And God demonstrates his power and authority to save against all odds. Have you looked at your life and at some point said, can you believe this happened? This also works out on the level of evangelism. Being an instrument in God's hands of bringing people to Christ can be a source of boasting for Christians. If God gives us success in evangelism, we can quickly become conceited. But God's goal in evangelism is to get us to say, we are incapable of this. The glory is God's, the privilege is ours for being allowed to be a part of what he was doing. When I first entered ministry, I did not have that mentality. Uh, coming out of seminary, seminarians are hotheads. They've been bathing in academic rigor for three, sometimes four years, and they're hotheads, and I was one of those. Very early on in, in ministry, God sent a gal, young gal into my life named Heather to change me. Heather had walked in from, from off the street into the church, and she had gone to the front desk and requested to meet with a pastor. Uh, I happened to be available at the time, so she came into my office. I said, Heather, what's up? For the next five minutes or so, she was, she was putting together an incoherent story filled with ambiguous phrases, imagery. She was not getting to the point. She was beating well around the bush. But after about five minutes of this, I think I had pieced together what, what had happened. The night before, she and her husband had been part of some sort of 
party. But this is not, this was not a typical party. Okay? Filled with all sorts of debaucherous stuff that maybe you've only heard about or read about. Uh, so she gets done five minutes of beating around the bush, ambiguous, broken sentences, and uh, she stopped, she paused, she took a deep breath, and she looked at me across my desk, and she said, so, I think I need to be born again. Uh, I'm not sure what I looked like from her vantage point, but in my mind, my jaw had hit the desk. And my first thought was, are you sure about that? You know, I haven't gone through the four spiritual laws yet. How do you know you want to be born again? I've got this tract. Can we go through this together first? So I spent a few minutes talking through the gospel, and the whole way through, she's nodding. She's like she's, she's thirsty. She's been walking through a desert. She just wants to drink. And I'm explaining the concept of water to her, but not giving it to her to drink. She was so ripe, she was falling off the vine. So ripe. I, took, I had to process that one for weeks. In fact, just, just a few months ago, because one week later, her husband ended up in my office with the same stuff. One week later. Three or four months ago, a, a colleague of mine let me know that uh, Josh and Heather were preparing for the mission field. As I processed that, I, I came to the conclusion that God's trying to deliver a message. He's saying, look, I'm not contingent on your four spiritual laws or your gospel tracts or your well-prepared gospel spiel. I'm not contingent on any of that to save someone. I am much bigger than that. The message we need to hear from the story of Gideon is pretty simple. In spite of our inadequacy, in spite of our weakness, God does the saving, and he gets all the credit for it. Second, reassurance comes through obedient risk-taking. The way in which uh, God reassures Gideon, though being outnumbered 450 to one, is very interesting. He tells him that he should go with his servant into the Midianite camp by night, crouch outside a tent, and listen to a conversation taking place within. There's nothing safe about that. There is nothing safe about that. Of all the ways God could have reassured this timid leader, he picks that. God, can't you just... Give it to me straight right here where I sit, right by my own fire, surrounded by my friends in my own camp. Can't you reassure me this way? But he doesn't. He instructs Gideon to take some risk, sneaking into a military camp of greater size than the city of Green Bay. And it's with, only within this obedient risk-taking that Gideon is reassured of God's presence and moved to worship and stirred to action. Tim Keller, reflecting on this, wrote this. He says, we can find that we lack assurance of God's presence with us 
and power for us because we never take a risk and do something bold in obedience to him. We never step out in faith and find him there. If I was getting, I would have wanted God to reassure me some other way. But there are times God reassures us of his presence and power only as we step out in faith. Now this story also tells us something about how God reassures us. It also tells us how God reassures us, practically speaking. First is through his word to us. God communicates with Gideon. It's through this communication that Gideon is receiving some assurance of his presence with him and his power for him. So as Christians, we need to remember that being in the word of God should never be a perfunctory act, but it should be something we engage in because we know as we go there, God is going to to provide some reassurance as we walk with him. Second, God reassures us through other people. Gideon found reassurance through the words of someone else. This highlights the importance of community. When we isolate, we cut ourselves off from a critical source of reassurance. And third, God reassures us through circumstances. Think about this. Picture a camp with 135,000 people. How many tents are there? How big is that? How does Gideon find the right tent? God's silent yet powerful directing of Gideon's steps brought him there. God reassures us through circumstances. As we step out in faith, as we take some risk, he reassures us. Third, sometimes God calls us to employ unconventional means in the fight. So let's think about this together. The military equipment of choice for Israel in this battle, trumpets, torches, and empty clay jars. Make sense? Uh, that's just perfect equipment for a band of 300 whose only chance of winning is going to be guerrilla warfare. That's great. That's military tactics. That's military equipment, military tactics. Blowing said trumpets, shouting, and showing the, en- the, the enemy their awesome energy-efficient torches. Does it make sense? Disconnected. Disconnected. Much like Jericho, the means employed to win this battle are, to say the least, unconventional. The means on the surface appear to be very disconnected from the reality of what needs to happen. Right? And yet, chapter 7, verse 22, when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. While the equipment and the tactics employed appear to be unconventional, they are what God used to win this victory. Now, there are numerous places within modern day life where this should instruct us. And one of those is prayer. Over the years in ministry in my own life, I've noticed the tendency to look at prayer as the pregame show, which happens later. 
right? You, you got your list of things that you're pouring out before God, you want to see them accomplished, but that's, just the, that's the prelude to the real thing that happens later. Let me give you an example of that. Now, maybe there's someone in your life who's a mess. They're stuck in sin. They might be miserable to be around. They aren't receptive to Jesus. If you see that as a, as a fight, as a battle, what, what would be conventional battle tactics? Well, why don't you just try this line of reasoning with them, this set of arguments? Go, go do that with them. You know, go, go get in their face a little bit, lovingly but firmly confronting, rebuking. That's more like the hand-to-hand combat type of stuff. And there's a, there's a place for that. But that's not what's coming out of this story. Th- those are conventional hand-to-hand combat tactics. Unconventional battle tactics would simply be to pray for them because many of us look at prayer as being disconnected from true ministry. And that couldn't be further from the truth. On the surface, prayer doesn't look like any way to win a battle, but neither does blowing trumpets, shouting, or shining torches. Sometimes God calls us to what on the surface looks like unconventional battle tactics. As if those battle tactics don't have anything to do with the outcome. But those are the tactics he uses to win victories. Prayer is not a prelude to ministry. It is ministry. We're gonna talk about vision and values a little later in the summer. And that's gonna be one that we're gonna have here as a church. Prayer is not a prelude to ministry. It is ministry. Prayer is always a great use of your time. When you're praying, you're in the trenches. You're engaged in the fight. Sometimes God calls us to employ means that to us look unconventional, but they are his ordained means of winning battles. There's another way to look at this story, and it has to do with how we define success and the road to it. Life in 21st century America says that your value is predicated on your achievements, what you do with yourself professionally. But life in God's kingdom is backwards. It says your, your, your value is predicated upon a lack of, of achievement. Our value is in our ability to admit our inadequacy. Our value is in our ability to admit our unworthiness. Our value is in our ability to trust God. He doesn't want our success. He wants our obedience. And nowhere is this more clearly seen than in the cross of Christ. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, I'm sure those who executed him thought those words meant they had won. But life in the kingdom is paradoxical. It's backwards. It is finished was not Jesus' cry of defeat. It was his declaration of victory. What looked like the greatest possible demonstration of weakness was in reality a climactic show of strength. 
Charles Colson was special counsel to President, Res President Richard Nixon back in the early 70s. Colson was regarded as Nixon's hatchet man. And he was in the middle of the, uh, the Watergate scandal. He was um, prosecuted, convicted, and he was sent to jail. And through that whole thing, Colson had become a Christian. Years later, the setting is Easter, and he's in a prison preaching to inmates. He writes this, as I sat on the platform waiting my turn at the pulpit, my mind began to drift back in time to scholarships and honors earned, cases argued and won, great decisions made from lofty government offices. My life had been the great American dream fulfilled. But all at once I realized that it was not my success God had used to enable me to help those in this prison or in hundreds of others, of others just like it. My life of success was not what made this morning so glorious. All my achievements meant nothing in God's economy. No, he writes, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure. That I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the one thing in which I could not glory for his glory. Confronted with this staggering truth, I discovered in those few moments in the prison chapel that my world was turned upside down. I understood with a jolt that I had been looking at life backward, but now I could see only when I lost everything I thought made Chuck Colson a great guy had I found the true self God intended me to be and the true purpose of my life. And then he concludes with this. He says, it is not what we do that matters, but what a sovereign God chooses to do through us. God doesn't want our success. He wants us. He doesn't demand our achievements. He demands our obedience. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of paradox where through the ugly defeat of a cross, a holy God is utterly glorified. Victory comes through defeat, healing through brokenness, finding self through losing self. That's the story of Gideon. That's the story of the gospel. We find our greatest usefulness in the kingdom of God when we look at ourselves and say we are outnumbered 450 to 1. We are most useful in the kingdom of God when we come to the end of ourselves, we look at what's in front of us and say there is no way this can happen, but we're going to step out in faith anyway. That's when we're most useful. And hopefully on the other side of that, we do what Gideon did. We worship. We worship. We praise this God whose MO is to work against all odds. Let's pray.
Gracious God, everything about this runs contrary to our nature. Because we drift, we always drift toward a look at me mentality that, that boasts in our abilities and competencies and accomplishments. But all the while, you want us to move to a place of inadequacy and unworthiness. God, you fight the battles and you do them on your time and in your way. But it's always the right time and it's always done in the right way. God, I pray that you'd help us to trust you with it. When it doesn't make sense, help us to trust you with it. Because you're after a result far more important than a battle victory. You're after our trust, you're after our worship, you're after our obedience. So God, I pray we would never mistake who does the saving. Let us never mistake who does the rescuing. Let us never mistake who gets the credit for all of that. We give it to you now. In your name, amen.